American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. What Sarah and I uh, had been discussing, I guess what's been billed on the agenda is, <coughs> is sort of art history meets, I don't know, history. Um, <laughs> You know, it's like alien versus predator or something like that. Um, and uh, but in fact, the, but Sarah and I have worked very harmoniously together on on in a number of of, of, uh, of ventures. And um, and rather than the the original sort of a loose idea of I guess we would have a little gab fest, uh, Sarah rightly made a suggestion. Why don't we present a case study? Or, you know, case studies how we are approaching particular uh, subjects tied to the Civil War um, right now, and that could be the basis of our you know discussion. So uh, I mean, it's a pretty you know it's a pretty simple format. So uh, Sarah is going to speak first on her case study. Thanks. So I never thought I was actually going to write about the painting that I'm going to talk about today. Um, it came about as a result of my association with the Newberry Library in Chicago. Uh, we're working together as a team to um, mount an exhibition on the visual culture of the North, um, home, the Northern home front during the Civil War, and um, the show centers around. Ten paintings from the Terra Foundation, one of which was this Willie Martin Spencer um, home of the red, white, and blue, which uh, unfortunately for the art historian has no provenance. No one knows if or where it was ever exhibited during the artist's lifetime. Were it exhibited, there was no criticism. Nobody knows who bought it. Um, it just popped up in a New York gallery. Um, several years ago, and it was bought by the Terror Foundation. So this was my um, assignment. And you know, we've already talked a lot about art history and history. I think that um, I feel that my own art historical interests dovetail and often overlap with those of historians, um, and that includes methodology. But um, as an art historian, I have a lot invested in keeping the image in play, keeping the image in the center, um, letting the image ask the questions, you might say, and letting the image make the argument. Um, and, and this does involve close looking, but it also involves looking at a lot of primary sources, you know, in literature, <coughs> in manuscript, and so on. Um, and of course, as we've discussed before, you know, any art, any image is a representation, not um, a, an unimpeachably truthful document. But I'm more interested, too, in getting below the surface of what might seem the obvious or the transparent meanings of an image. Um, I like to, you know, I, I think it's more fun and, and more meaningful in the end to tease out ambiguities, tensions and contradictions, um, you know, sort of get down below the surface layer of the picture, and um, also to try to build a kind of constellation of images that will illuminate the 
um, many meanings, the multivalent kinds of meanings that it's possible to sort of tease out of um, any particular image. So, so let's um, look at this painting. Um, this is Willie Martin Spencer's Home of the Red, White, and Blue, and I'm <coughs> glad that we've already seen Willie Martin Spencer in the gallery. Um, this painting dates from a year or two after um, she did The War Spirit at Home. It's, um, it's about 24 by uh, 30 inches, so it's, it's basically an easel painting. And as you can see, there's an awful lot going on in it. Um, so you know, the first thing I would do, of course, would be to um, you know, sort of map out the figures, the composition, the relationships, and um, we won't spend too much time doing that now because there's a lot of other material to go through, but clearly, you know, here we have <coughs> women in the center. A mother, again, it's a self-portrait, and her younger daughter, her older daughter, they're all dressed in hues that evoke the colors of the American flag, the Union flag, red, white, and blue. Um, and then there's this very sort of perplexing entry of an organ grinder um, with a begging monkey. The girl is afraid of the monkey. She has a coin, but she's afraid to actually put it in the monkey's little cap. Um, the little boy is handing a bottle, a uh, glass of milk up to the organ grinder. The grinder has a little girl with him who plays the tambourine. Over here, well, this is a grandmotherly figure, grandfather figure, and the wounded bearer home from the war. On the other side is what is clearly an Irish maid, a nursemaid, holding a baby, and um, the baby is wearing little you know, sort of ribbons of red, white, and blue, and sort of reaching out to the center group. So you can sort of see right away that there's a division in the picture between the others, except for the baby. And you know this sort of united, um, reconnected American family, Anglo-American, or maybe Franco-American because Spencer's parents actually were French. Um, but in any case, it seems like um, you're an opposition, you know, sort of a tension between the two sides of the canvas, between the immigrant side and the established Anglo-American side, the you know, sort of connected family that's been here for generations. But um, what interested me particularly about this painting were some of the details. And um, here again we get to the importance of close looking and in particular the importance of looking at the actual painting, um, which I finally got to see, which kind of changed my argument when I began to see certain details. So um, what we see here are things that are very significant, as you can see. Um, every one of the adult women has a gold thimble on her finger. This is the teenage daughter. This is the mother. Uh, the grandmotherly figure who's working on some bunting also has a thimble on this finger. And then there's this American flag, which is the most prominent thing in the foreground. It's not a whole flag, it's in two pieces. The stripes have been separated from, almost surgically cut from the Union, um, the stars, which are lying on a purple velvet footstool, almost like a little throne. 
And um, then, gee, there's the sewing basket on top of the flag. And so you begin to make these connections. There's red, white, and blue thread. There's a pin cushion. Um, and so at one level, it seems as if, well, this is what the painting is all about. Thimbles, sewing basket, flag in two pieces. Gee, the women are going to stitch up the wounds of war. They're going to heal the nation. They're going to stitch the nation back together. And so it would seem that women are given a very important role in the um, changing post-war landscape. But um, I decided, well, it's, it's a little too transparent. There are so many other things going on in this painting. And um, I came across this essay by Harriet Beecher Stowe in the Atlantic Monthly um, after the war. And um, she exhorted women to take an active role in the reconstruction of the Union after the war. She said that women are the real architects <coughs> of society and um, that women could put noble meaning even into the humblest domestic tasks, including, and perhaps above all, sewing. So we could sort of look at this painting as you know, somehow um, conveying the same kind of meaning about women's role in the post-war world, you know, like putting meaning into these humble tasks of sewing, um, the sewing basket and the thimble being used to sort of stitch back, uh, stitch the nation back together. Um, so the sense is that you know, women have the skill, they have the will to bend a fractured union, and all this seems really self-evident. But then um, I began to consider the fact that this was a, a post-war landscape of change. It's 1867. Um, you know, it's even Reconstruction hasn't been sorted out yet. And um, so I began to think about how, how else could you, you know, where else can we go with this painting? It's, it's obviously not just a genre painting, but, but kind of an allegory. And um, it's both prospective, that is, oriented toward the future, and at the same time, retrospective. Um, and this is where I began to ask questions about, well, the flag seems awfully important. And the fact that the women are here with the thimbles and the sewing basket. And so the first question that occurred to me was, well, what was the association of women and flags during the war? You know, why is this so important? You know, this, <coughs> this um, juxtaposition. So I began to look into the Civil War visual culture from which Spencer, it turns out, actually drew her symbolic vocabulary. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's a fair amount of writing about uh, what happened early in the war, which was this outburst of flag mania. And um, for Spencer, uh, the flag in the painting is actually based on a set of um, well-established conventions um, that were rooted in gendered cultural and social practices of the war. This particularly had to do with the connection of women and flags in many different um, levels. Um, women immediately began to, 
to make flags. Uh, they made them for display. They made them um, as big as the original Star Spangled Banner. Um, they made little flaglets. They made flag needle cases. There were flag fashions. There was the Union bonnet. Um, but most particularly, women actually fabricated flags. They, they would give flags and also regimental colors to troops that were leaving home, going down to the battlefront. Um, and this detail from a Thomas Mass spread in Harper's Weekly actually shows women you know, together as if they were at a quilting bee, sewing a flag cooperatively. This, um, the little girls in the print here wave flags. They have red, white, and blue um, ribbons on their clothing. And this is um, Ladies Loyal Union League certificate. These were issued um, and, and signed by women who wanted to sort of testify to their loyalty. Woman pointing at the flag, um, exhorting her soldier husband to defend it. Uh, women, a woman holding up a flag to teach her children patriotism. Um, women watching soldiers parade by with flags waving above. And, um, <coughs> It seemed as if the connections between women and flags and patriotism and flag making were really, really very significant and um, really, um, in particular, relevant to the way women wanted to play an active role in the war and um, to display their patriotic fervor. Um, so it kind of made more sense in the Spencer painting that the flag and the thimbles and the sewing basket were such a significant um, cluster of images. But then I began to think about what else women must have been sewing during the war. It wasn't just flags, but rather um, women by the thousand, middle class women, more especially working class women, used needles and thimbles for much more practical purposes, making clothes, making equipment for the Union Army. And um, so this led me to Winslow Homer. Um, mere weeks after the um, firing on Fort Sumter and the beginning of real hostilities, Homer is placed, his, his illustration is placed on the cover of Harper's Weekly Magazine women making Havelocks for the volunteers. And um, this is a power scene in which women are making um, these sunscreens for men's necks uh, to attach to their kepis because supposedly they were going down, they would be going down south and you know, their um, necks would be burned by the hot southern sun. And there was this, just as there was flag mania, so also there was Havelock mania early in the war, and so this is what we see in Homer's painting. Um, women in a domestic context who at the same time are sewing articles of apparel that are meant for the soldiers, you know, for the troops who are going off to war. Um, but there are a couple of things about this illustration that I thought were particularly interesting. And again, you know, Homer always replays, it repays close reading, um, there's a portrait of a soldier with his kepi hat on, um, looking down at the women and a billowing American flag. Um, 
But this figure is interesting. This young woman actually has a soldier's cap on her head. And the woman next to her is actually working on a jacket. And you can just make out three letters, Z-O-U, on the jacket. And this is a reference to the Zouave regiments. Um, and from these letters, we can sort of jump to the fashion of the fashion for the Zouave jacket, the militarization of fashion early in the war, um, as we see in the Scotty's illustration. But um, while Zouave jackets became fashionable, the man's soldier's hat, the Kepi never did. This wasn't something that women wore, they wore bonnets. So it's interesting that she has a Kepi on her head. And it's interesting that in another Willie Martin Spencer painting, uh, the artist and her family on the 4th of July picnic, this young woman, who's in a kind of, you know, sort of cheeky pose, has snatched the kepi from the head of the soldier whom she's standing next to, probably her, her boyfriend. Um, so another question that came to me in thinking about this was, well, are these subversive? You know, we talked about Willie Martin Spencer's subversive little, you know, sort of pot-pounding girl in the war spirit at home. And, you know, it would seem that, yes, maybe these gestures speak to the war's liberating potential for women. And, you know, women certainly did move into active public roles during the war, nursing, fundraising, and, and moving into, you know, jobs that had formerly been held by men. Um, so, what this speaks to, um, well, basically, is this notion of home front and battle front. Um, to what degree did the boundaries of domesticity dissolve during the course of the war as women took these more active public roles? And what can we tease out of images like these that would suggest you know, both how those boundaries dissolved, because here we have the militarization of fashion, we have you know, the making of war articles at home in domestic space, they would be making you know, sort of fancy bonnets or you know, other kinds of feminine apparel perhaps before the war. Here they're making soldiers' hats. Um, by the way, Havelock mania quickly ran its course. <laughs> and, you know, one, one soldier wrote back that you know, the luckiest among the, his friends in the regiment were those who had the fewest mothers, sisters, and girlfriends, you know, to make them Havelikes. Um, but in any case, so to what degree, though, are they really liberated from the domestic sphere? They're still in the parlor, they're still contained, and uh, there, there seems to be a kind of tension between, you know, women's active agency in their participation in the war and the fact that they're still, you know, sort of bound in this domestic setting, which we can see in another detail from uh, Winslow Homer illustration on women in the war, in which we have these thoroughly domestic sewing circles um, that are occupied together, even with a sewing machine, you know, making soldier shirts. And this is actually inscribed on the box so that you can make no mistake about the fact that they are, you know, sort of participating in the war effort, but in a ladylike and, uh, you know, still pretty clearly circumscribed way. 
But um, they have thousands, many, many thousands of women also sewed shirts. They also sewed uniforms. Um, but these were working class women. So the next thing I, I tried to find out about and think about was other forms of, of production, other forms of you know, sort of domestic industry which was militarized during the Civil War. Um, you know, thousands of women workers were doing outsourced or factory <coughs> you know, sort of sweated labor. Uh, the government contracted out um, much of the manufacture of uniforms um, and uh, unscrupulous contractors would hire women who labored long hours and who were certainly not well paid for their labor. Um, and, and this actually was represented an opportunity for many women who were working in these you know, sort of miserable underpaid conditions. They began to organize. Middle class people helped them, but in New York, for example, um, a judge, a Judge Daly um, and his wife helped to organize a working women's protection union. Um, there were strikes, there were petitions. Uh, women got all the way to the Secretary of War to demand you know, that they be given better wages and better working conditions. Um, so here, the boundaries really did erode to some degree, even though union activism wasn't particularly effective. At, um, at least it you know, sort of represented a change for women. Um, there's a poem I found which uh, praised women um, who were fighting in their own way, um, singing the song of the shirt uh, for a dagger, a needle, for a scissors for brand. So there's this sense of, you know, sort of womanly weapons being deployed in the war. and. Um, I found, you know, this sheet music cover was one that was used by Alice Foss in um, her book on you know, the Imagine Civil War. It's by the song is by the Chicago um, composer Henry Work, and as you can see, it's it's a really surprising image because we really have womanly weapons, different kinds of womanly weapons, which are used um, in a very very warlike context. The song is about women um, getting sick of the, the fact that the men keep losing the battles, mm -hmm. and they're going to go down themselves and you know, sort of beat those rebels. So we have this fantasy scene. They're holding brooms, they're holding tea kettles, they're holding tongues, <coughs> and um, they're chasing away these fleeing Confederates, you know, women victorious in battle, using their domestic weapons in this completely different and uh, surprising new context. Um, and this actually did happen in real life to, to in a certain sense. Uh, for example, when the Conscription Act was you know, um, put into effect, women in Lancaster, Pennsylvania actually marched on the courthouse to protest, to protest the draft. And they, were, they came you know, sort of brandishing kitchen knives and, and other in implements. So you know, there's this kind of continuum of instances in which you know, the domestic um, apparatus of womanly you know, sort of work is, in a sense, weaponized. But then, so domestic labor is militarized. 
um, to a much further degree in the federal arsenals where bullets were made. And uh, women were employed in great numbers in all of these arsenals. <laughs> Once again, we have the um, example of Winslow Homer. I'm showing you a detail from um, his Harper's cover, which, which was uh, actually published very soon after making Havelocks for volunteers. So we have the domestic women making Havelocks in their parlor, and we have the working class women who are doing something, tasks that actually look quite domestic. They're sitting quietly at a table. They could be at a quilting bee. And um, Lucretia Giesberg actually makes this comparison in her discussion of um, this image. You know, yes, they are under surveillance, but they're doing this very quiet, domestic-looking work. They look very demure and very proper, but what are they doing? They're stuffing bullets into gunpowder-loaded cartridges. The register at the bottom actually shows the men who are uh, filling the cartridges. And, um, and so you think about this further. Well, this is another way that the home front and the battle front um, somehow merged. You know, the boundaries between home and battlefield sort of dissolving and, and collapsing together. Um, because what are these women doing? They're making these little death packages, you know, things that could maim, things that could kill. Um, and this brings us in mind of you know, safety and the home front. Um, Alice Foss writes about women's wounds as being emotional, wounds of the heart. But being on the home front was no guarantee of safety, as it turns out. So, you know, sort of reading about these arsenals um, led me eventually to one of the worst domestic home front disasters of the war, which was the explosion of the Allegheny Arsenal um, outside of Pittsburgh. Um, Seventy plus women and girls died in this explosion. You know, there was gunpowder all over the place. It didn't take much to you know, sort of set off a charge. And so this is like a huge, huge explosion um, with the most gruesome carnage. The uh, newspapers are full of grisly descriptions of sort of bodies being you know, sort of severed into two pieces, limbs and, and piles of intestines lying about, uh, nothing being left of some women but the singed bands, the steel bands of their hoop skirts. Um, and it struck me that no battlefield could have been more horrible than this. Um, other explosions included Browns Island Confederate Laboratory in Richmond, 50 killed women um, <laughs> in the Washington Arsenal, um, in which more than 20 died. So, so there's a sense that you know, the home front really is the battlefront. The two merge together. Um, but we need to get back to Spencer at this yeah. at this point. Is the date of that explosion kind of important as well? Well, yeah, that's the same day as Antietam. Yeah. I was going to actually bring that up, but you beat me to it. Um, <laughs> and the interesting thing is that you know Antietam completely overshadowed this explosion. It was much reported in the local papers. I searched high and low. There are no representations of it. There are no photographs, and you know it seems as if the means of visual representation simply couldn't cope with you know, this damage to the female body at that time. But back to the flag. Um, so this makes us think more about the flag. Um, why is it lying there? Um, 
whose body was the next question that I asked because um, this is a flag that sprawled in disorder and it's in pieces. Why is it lying on the ground? Um, you can't help, or I couldn't help anyway, thinking about the manner in which it seemed to evoke the wounded body, um, amputated limbs. And, and so far from being simply two pieces of cloth that women are going to stitch together, it seemed much more complicated than that. And um, I found out that the flag during the war was intimately and you know, very, very closely identified with the female body. You know, soldiers were you know, sort of cultured, many soldiers at least, were, you know, sort of went to war with the idea that they were protecting their wives, they were protecting their mothers, and that the flag, which women had made for them to carry into battle, uh, was the surrogate for the women on the home front whom they were going to protect and uh, cherish. And soldiers were willing to die for these flags. You know, the regimental colors, the Union flag, um, at Chickamauga, for example, you know, one and then two and then three of the regiment fell in protecting the flag. They didn't want it to hit the ground. They didn't want it to be trampled. They didn't want it to be despoiled by the Southerners and defiled on the ground by the <coughs> rebels. And um, so these flags were given reverential treatment. You see, you know, there's, there's probably dozens, if not scores of images like these, you know, waving a tattered flag, you know, sort of keeping it off the ground on the battlefield. There are you know, songs about the tattered <coughs> flag. And in this um, painting by Thomas Waterman Wood, this is uh, the return of an Irish regiment to New York with the flags that they bore and saved in battle. You know, they're in tatters, but even so, they're given this reverential treatment. Um, and these were actually taken to the state capitol in Albany where they were you know, kind of enshrined lovingly as relics. But these are different from the flag in Spencer's painting, which is, um, these are triumphant. You know, and they're sort of hanging proudly still from their staffs, even though they're in rags, whereas in Spencer's painting, this flag is heaped and jumbled on the ground. It's not tattered, um, and yet it, it looks wounded. Um, and, and it's sprawling on the ground, making it seem almost like a feminized casualty of war. Um, and to me, anyway, you know, it suggested you know, sort of comparisons with the battlefield, you know, or with the wounded women of the explosion in the Allegheny arsenal young women violently torn apart, men um, violently dead on the battlefield. Oh yeah, just, this is a typical quote, you know, Edward, Edward Everett Hale's famous Man Without a Country, which was published in the Atlantic Monthly. This, is, this sort of sums it all up. Um, Never let a night pass, but you pray to God to bless that flag. Remember, boy, that behind all else there is the country herself your country, stand by her boy as you would stand by your mother. So there's this conflation of the sort of flag, the female body, um, and the you know, sort of idea of the country itself as 
female. Which led, how much time do I have? Am I running on too late? A little Okay. <laughs> well, oh, okay, so, you know, to sort of pick up the pace a little bit, then we have this veteran, the Union veteran, um, who's returned to his family, and yet he's in the shape. He's wounded, he's got crutches, his boot is just touching the tip of the flag. So, um, you know, that sort of led into thinking about the status of the veteran, you know, sort of readjusting the traumatized veteran who might be an amputee, and the suggestion of the balance of power, you know, something that hangs in the balance. And something like Homer's water, Our Watering Places, the empty sleeve near Newport, in which the woman clearly has agency. So you get the sense again that, wow, the boundaries have eroded. She's driving the buggy or the phaeton while he sits there with his sleeve pinned up, sort of weak-looking, helpless, a victim. And yet, um, there's another story to the the sort of history of amputees after the war, uh, many refused prosthetic devices. They were proud of their missing limbs because those had actually been sacrificed to save the Union. There was the Left Armed Corps, which was a whole group of soldiers who learned to write again with their remaining hands. And they had big exhibitions in um, New York and Washington. Um, so, so there's an ambiguity here as to the status of this veteran. Um, is he is the missing limb an honorable scar, or a symbol of weakness and dependency? And you know, this song, "The Empty Sleeve," you know, talks about the dear old flag, you know, and tells who saved our banner. So, the wounded amputee is not necessarily someone who is less a man. What's the date on that? Um, it's like 1865, 66, I think. It's sort of right at the end of the war, or post-war. Anyway, well, just to you know, sort of try to speed through things here. Um, then that get me to the organ grinders. Organ grinders were immigrants. Um, everyone found them annoying. Um, they <laughs> were recruited. In the uh, Padroni, you know, the Padroni system, labor brokers who brought them over to uh, the United States, they would play on street corners with children who may or may not have been their own. Um, it was all kind of business. So, so we have this alien figure who's in, you know, seems to be intruding on the white Anglo-Saxon family group, you know, sort of begging. Um, what I discovered, though, was that there could be, you know, obviously there's something about social change here, you know, immigrant society, you know, a threat to, you know, the uh, demographic balance of the United States, but at the same time, there actually could be kind of a subtle link between the organ grinder and the wounded veteran, because wounded veterans were everywhere, many of them begged, and some of them also played the organ ground the organ um, the corners of city streets. Real organ grinders, in fact, began to disappear around this time. But um, soldiers took their place um, and became wanderers, begging for coppers in this, what was called a disgraceful vagabondage. So um, what I find interesting about this is the place of men <coughs> in the scheme of things. They're on the sidelines. 
they're aliens, they're begging, um, they are on crutches, and women are in the center, and I'm going to, um, oh yes, so, um, and this gets us back to Spencer's painting finally, um, I'm not going to talk about the little son in yellow, because I don't have time. There's a whole other story about him. But um, if no war had been as much a women's war as this one, in the words of the diarist um, George Augustus Sala, would it be a woman's peace? And I think this is the question that the painting finally poses. You know, women are in the center. They're going to stitch up the wounds of war. They're going to heal the nation. And yet, at the same time, after the war, there was an increasing pressure on women to return to the same conventional domestic roles that they had temporarily left um, when the war started. So, so what about women? Where do they stand? Um, and even though men are pushed to the sidelines in Spencer's painting, and women seem to lead the way, um, you know, there's, there's kind of a balance here between hope for the future. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton talking about women going from slavery to freedom, the hope that women would win the vote, and the hope that was, was demolished when finally the 15th Amendment was ratified, um, giving the vote only to adult men. So, so there's a kind of general retrenchment that happens at the same time. So what would women be after the war? Um, the women's movement kind of fell apart until the 1880s. This is a suffrage association meeting in Chicago. These are the male view. This is what women should be, again, after the war, as in Johnson's <coughs> painting, um, Thomas Nass, Women's Kingdom. She's also in a rocking chair, but she's bossing the man around. This was, um, in a sense, what the retrenchment was all about. Um, so I see this painting finally as one in which the question hangs in the air. Could the feminine needle and thread and thimble repair the damage done by war? Is the flag beyond repair? Um, women might stitch up the flag, but perhaps the wounds of war and the aftermath could be beyond their power to heal. Um, but I still see this painting as unique in that the veteran is in the shade um, women hold pride of patriotic place, and for one moment in 1867, they seem to stand empowered you know, between the detritus of war and the threshold of a very uncertain future. And I'm sorry that took so long, um, and we should probably be discussing instead of me just talking, but uh, maybe we'll have time for that. Sure.